check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, Anna Geiger here from The Measured Mom, and today I'm sharing a really fun interview with Dr. Nathaniel Swain. He's a teacher, instructional coach, researcher, writer, speech-language pathologist. He's a young dad, and he's from Australia. And I found him when I listened to a really interesting and entertaining webinar he gave about what we need to change when we move forward from balanced literacy. And it was just so interesting. I knew that you would love to hear from him. So he very kindly agreed to be on the podcast. We had a great conversation. I think you're going to really get a lot out of today's episode. Welcome, Dr. Swain. Thank you for having me, Anna. It's such a pleasure to be here. So I really, really enjoyed the presentation I saw on your website about what we have backwards with balanced literacy. And I resonated with so much of it because I was a balanced literacy teacher during the heyday of balanced literacy, really when it really became a thing. Mm. So um, you're quite a bit younger than I am. So you maybe have, have different experiences with it. Can you talk to us about how you got into education and what, how you learned about balanced literacy and, and all that? Sure. So I, I think I'm a product of balanced, balanced literacy in my own schooling. So okay. my, you know, the, the, the schooling that I had in the 90s was very much informed by a whole language. Um, there was a big focus on student-led learning and, you know, that grammar and things weren't taught. And um, I don't ever remember being taught how to read. I think I was probably mm. one of those lucky students that came and was probably reading before I started school. Um, so I think um, I, I actually didn't come to teaching pretty directly. My mum always said that I should be a teacher, but I resisted it for a really long time. <laughs> so um, I initially went in and studied linguistics. I was really interested in language and um, learning a second language. I was fascinated by how language works and it actually made me reflect on my own language in a way that um, you know that explicit teaching and grammar back in the early years would have actually sparked that interest earlier. After studying linguistics, I was thinking, you know, what do I do with this degree? So I actually looked to speech language pathology, and I, I studied that first as my master's, um, and started working with young people with language and literacy difficulties uh, in mainstream primary schools and secondary schools, but also in youth justice. Um, and so the kids in juvenile detention was um, the, the big group that I was working with, and I got to see what. Um, educational disengagement looks like and what um, reading failure and writing failure sort of looks like. And that was a big eye-opener for me. I think I didn't realize just how much work um, there was um, for you know people who are passionate about language and literacy and to try and turn things around because when you see kids who've had a really tough experience in their schooling and can't do basic things like read at a first grade or a second grade level and they're you know young adults working with you it's pretty eye-opening and so that really piqued my interest and um, through that process even after finishing my PhD I went back and, and trained as a teacher and now it's my my sole passion is working um, as as a teacher and working with teachers to optimize the classroom environment to make it as um, beneficial for the teacher and their, you know, managing their workload and their well-being, but also getting the most out of the opportunities to, to work with students. So my passion is now literacy. It's also, um, you know, classroom practice in general. So what that looks like in numeracy, but also in the other elements of the curriculum, so science and history. And I'm trying to um, support teachers to make that transition from what we've got now, which is a whole language balanced literacy status quo, into what we hope we might get to in the future, where everyone gets an education that is aligning with the best um, knowledge that we have from the science of learning and the science of reading. So would you say that overall Australia is still very balanced literacy? 
whole language. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely. I think it's it's what it's the water that we're swimming in. You know, mm-hmm. people don't even realize that balanced literacy is a thing. But then you start talking about what it looks like, and and people reflect on their own um, pre-service training as teachers, and they think, oh yeah, that was what that's what I got. And in general, if you, you go into any you know run of the mill like regular mainstream um, or or private sort of school in Australia, you're going to see balanced literacy activities and structures and and resources as well. So um, anything that that it goes against the grain with that in terms of um, the explicit teaching of phonemic awareness or phonics or vocabulary, fluency and comprehension, it's gonna, that's going to be quite unfamiliar for a lot of people, quite similar to the states in that way. So in your workshop, you talked about how we started with whole language and then it switched to balanced literacy. And I don't remember if it was you or someone who said, I didn't notice a whole lot of a difference. Like it just kind mm. of got a new name. Can you talk a little bit about how those two things are related? Yeah, so whole language, I think, was, um, grew out of the work of Ken, Ken Goodman and um, Frank Smith in the US, uh, also aligned with a lot of the work that Mari Clay was doing in New Zealand, which then was brought over to the US in the, the Reading Recovery Program. And it sort of it tapped into this whole progressive education movement where um, the teacher was taking a step back from holding the space in the classroom and really trying to put love of literacy and a love of learning at the very forefront. The explicit teaching of things probably was really unfashionable at the time it was all about getting kids excited about reading and getting them interested and motivated balanced literacy sort of came in after the national reading panel in the u.s and similar reports in the uk and australia basically which said that you really need to teach phonics and you need to teach phonemic awareness and the other elements of the big five Uh, i think it was an accidental sort of um, attempt by one of the phonics people who said well we do value literature and we do value all these other parts as well it's not just about phonics and so why don't we have more of a balance and that was really picked up by the probably people more on the whole language side of things and and packaged into this whole approach and that's where Fonz Pennell became really big uh, people like Lucy Culkin sort of became really um, prominent as well so the pure whole language stuff disappeared um, in many ways it, it sort of still exists in some forms but um, the balanced literacy approach where it's a bit of a, a mix of lots of different things and a bit of phonics sprinkled in there is definitely the the status quo at the moment so I remember when I first became a teacher so I read a lot of Reggie Routman stuff and I just and unfortunately, I got rid of those books because I, I wish I could refer to them. So I got one from the library today, mm. Invitations, and that was a very whole language book. Yes. Um, so I think I started a little bit from whole language, but I also knew that that was bad because <laughs> whole language didn't teach, suppose, I mean, pure whole language doesn't even teach letters. I was reading a book by Frank Smith and he, he was He's like- He's really against it's, it. It's, yeah. Oh yeah. Useless to know the alphabet, he said. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think we felt good about what we were doing because we had this great new name for it, balanced literacy. And it's, it's and got the I, bits and pieces that you like and that it works, but it's yeah. still really child-centered and it's real, all about teaching them at their right level and everything like that. So it, it did feel good. And I think that's why it really took off in the early 2000s. In the book that Reggie Rotman wrote, she has the graphic for the- three cues that um, we assumed that kids were using to read. And I know that they really haven't been able to nail down where that came from exactly, but it's been floating around for a long time. I think the three cueing method is really, or the approach is is really um, a way to explain how it is that students manage to become fluent readers and recognize words when it doesn't look like you know, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like 
they're actually reading letter by letter. You know, they make mm-hmm. guesses at words or students will um, attempt and, and sort of guess what the rest of the word might be if they look at the first letter. So um, those cues of um, what is the sentence sort of context and the, um, the syntax, what is the, um, the, the meaning that could be there, like what's something that makes sense to put in that sentence that that word might be. And then the last resort being the, um, the sound letter correspondence or the graphophonic as they call it in the model. Um, it, it does have an intuitive appeal. It's like, oh yeah, students can sort of guess their way through things. And um, the, the wording from Goodman is that they make, they sample and they, they sample elements of the letters and words, but they don't actually read each letter and each word. Mm-hmm. And that's what they thought in the 70s and 80s when this was in its sort of prime. Um, and unfortunately it, it is appealing and it hasn't gone away because it's an easy thing that you can sort of teach. If you believe that 3Qing works, all you have to do is um, do those lessons where student uh, teachers are encouraged to cover words up with post-it notes and talk through these different um, strategies, you know, picture power and things like that. So it's it's an easy thing for teachers to implement because they have to give those three cues of like, does it look right? Does it sound right? Um, does it make sense? You know, those three ones. And you don't actually then have to know anything about the word and how it's structured, its etymology, it's where it's come from in terms of morphemes and, you know, whether it's got any tricky spelling patterns in there. Like you don't really need to know that because you just answer those three questions. So I think it's not going away because there hasn't been enough um, opportunity for teachers to learn that there's an alternative because it has that intuitive appeal because the actual teaching of um, the structure of English is actually a lot harder um, and requires a bigger effort from the teacher but also from you know the school district and um, being able to give high quality resources that help teachers understand what they're teaching really knowing what it's about and why they're explaining it that way Um, so I hope that I hope that sort of hints at that a little bit but yeah that's it's a million dollar question is why won't this thing go away (laughs) but but i think yeah i think part of it is because um most of us that are using it are primary teachers using Mm. leveled books that were written for kids to be able to use the cues to solve the words so i know when i taught with balanced literacy people tell me doesn't work i was like well my kids are reading like i Mm. thought they were reading i didn't understand the simple view that Mm. looking at them to me they were arriving at the words they were getting what the text meant and that was Mm. reading and i thought that all of them would just this this little separate phonics that i was teaching you know embedded and also a little bit separately i thought they were just gradually going to pull all together and some of them did Mm. um but i think i think a lot of us don't follow them up and see well how are you doing in third or fourth grade when you're reading these harder books have i equipped you to solve those big words or read those big words Mm. and then also i think um like you said Teachers don't, like, I did not know all the phonics patterns. I mean, I learned to read with phonics, but I hadn't thought much about it. Mm. Um, There's a lot to get your head around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very lucky that I'm at La Trobe University in Melbourne um, in Australia, where the whole um, undergrad and and master's course has been revamped to put the science of reading at the forefront. So we're very excited to be bringing our first cohort through now. And part of that work is with, um, it's called the Solar Lab, which is a group of um, researchers with Pamela Snow and Tanya Seri at La Trobe Uni. And we, you know, are very excited to prepare teachers in this new way um, and to help them connect with the research around, you know, what, how reading used to be taught and, you know, what is balanced literacy, because that's the the schools that they're going to go out and they're going to see that. And then also how can we um, use the science of reading to improve that practice? And um, as I talk about in my article to sort of flip it around, uh, that what we need to emphasize early is emphasized really well. Um, and then what we can embed more contextually can be con- in- contextualized later. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who said, 
well, I'm a balanced literacy teacher because meaning is most important. And that's mm. what I'm focusing on. And when you start with phonics, you basically produce word callers and kids who don't really understand what they're reading. Yeah. So look, it's that critique of phonics being like barking at print. And that's the thing that Frank Smith and Mari Clay and Ken Goodman really had a big problem with. Um, they don't want kids sitting there and looking like they're being drilled in sounds and letters. Um, I think the the selling point for me in terms of seeing it work is that for some kids, this opportunity to learn how the speech system maps with the orthography or the spelling system of English is the only way that they're going to become fluent readers. Other yes. kids, maybe the top 50 or top 40% will learn either way. And, you know, they're going to be fine. They're actually, they're not going to read any less well. They're actually potentially going to read better, but also have a more explicit awareness of how words fit together and their spelling is going to improve as a result. Yes. Um, you know, they, they might've always been a great reader, but we've got a whole generation of kids that aren't great spellers because they've picked, taken to read in like reading like water, but they um, haven't had that explicit awareness of how how words um, are structured and the, the morphology and the, the parts of words and how they fit together and all the spelling rules that you really go into and the grade, you know, grade one and grade two, it's really becomes important to not just understand the, the sounds, but also the, the way that the words fit together in terms of spelling. So the selling point is that for the bottom 60%, this is make or break. If you don't yeah. teach the early phonics piece and phonemic awareness piece really well and give them opportunities to practice those skills in decodable text, which is accessible and which does um, target those sound letter patterns that, that, that they've learned, then some of them won't actually become fluent readers at all. Um, they'll become like the teenagers that I've worked with who are using those three cueing strategies still at age 16 and 17 yeah. and not realizing that they're guessing words and substituting mm -hmm. and leaving words out. And, and they don't even know that, that's, um, that there's another way that they could read. They think that reading is a guessing game. Um, and as Emily Hanford highlighted so well in her podcast on Sold a Story, um, it's really exhausting to read in that way. A lot of adults <laughs> who, who yeah. have been taught in this way and would have benefited from more explicit in instruction, they find reading really hard. It's this horrible process of trying to make it work and trying to guess what it might be and, and trying. And, and you feel like, oh, to get through a paragraph is so tiresome. Whereas fluent reading, when it's done really well, when you teach phonics and phonemic awareness in a really clear and sequential way and in a way that's responsive to what your, your students need from you, um, it actually makes reading really fluent and easy. Because the whole point, simple view of reading, is that you get the decoding working really well um, so that you can focus on comprehension. The whole point is that it, it opens up this whole world of text yeah. for students because by the time they get to year two and year three, you're wanting them to be very fluent so that you're basically not thinking about decoding much anymore except for right. really complicated multisyllabic words where you might attack them using your morpheme sort of knowledge um, based on how the word's structured. So basic decoding shouldn't really be a thing if you're doing this really well once you get to those middle years. And I've mentioned that I've told this story in the podcast before, but with my youngest, I, that's when I learned about structural literacy, science of reading. And I like to teach my kids to read before they go to school because I think I should get to do it. Yeah. So I did that with him and I had just learned about all this and I thought, okay, I get it. I need to be using decodables, but I wasn't quite ready to let go of my level books. So the first day I did both and right away, it was like the light bulb finally all these years went off. Like this is so much so inefficient for me mm. to try to say, well, what would make sense? Well, let's, oh, now you can't sound this book out, but let's look at the picture. And, and yeah. then whereas with the other book, I mean, it was very hard to yes. watch, um, to watch him have to slow down and sound out every single word. Like it was a little bit painful. I was used to my kids just breezing through mm. these pattern books, but um, he picked it up pretty quickly. And once he did, 
you know, everything was unlocked. And cracked I... the code, exactly. And that's the hard work that the whole language and balance literacy sort of hardline um, researchers have said, well, we don't want kids to be put through that sort of struggle yeah. phase of like figuring it out sound by sound. And it looks painful. It looks annoying. But that's the work of, of cracking mm-hmm. the code. It's English isn't a, a simple one-to-one relationship. There's going to be tricky words in there. But when you break it down and you give them text that is at their sort of level of what they can code, then um, you see kids being able to focus on the mainstay of what decoding should be about in the early stages, which is identifying the correct letter sound for that um, particular pattern and then blending it together. And that process of blending can take six months for some kids. So they need yeah. that um, that specific practice again and again and again until they actually get what blending is about and how it works. And then it's like it, it goes off by itself. And they, the self-teaching hypothesis, which is David Sher's theory, um, it takes over. They start teaching themselves new patterns because their brain is cued into um, knowing that words can be broken down into their sounds and, and, to, and into bigger chunks like morphemes. Um, you can't stop them from figuring out new words. I think that's the sweet spot that you get to once you put in the hard yards but initially for some kids it can be really hard going yeah and we we have we expect a lot of our kindergarten and first grade teachers to really Mm. be the ones to do this hard work Um, but once kids realize that they're the ones doing it that's where all the excitement comes from i think so exactly reading yeah what people often talk about some people in the science of reading community really talk about balanced literacy with a lot of vitriol like just very they just really, really hate it, I think, because mm. they've seen seen what it, some kids yeah. reacted to it. But I know that there are still things worth keeping. Can you talk to us about the good of balanced literacy and maybe some things that were good that we can twist a little bit to meet our meet our goals? Certainly. I think um, from even from the first year of school, there should be opportunities for students to hear and to enjoy um, rich literature. I think the the emphasis doesn't have to be on students independently reading those books because they're probably to get rich literature at their decodable level is going to be very tricky. But that's where the importance of read alouds and um, acting out stories and um, students hearing stories read to them by adults and um, by older peers is really valuable. So um, having a classroom that has that um, mix of um, text that is for the purpose of learning how to read and text that's for the purpose of um, reading to learn, I think is really important. And that can start from right from the beginning of school. Um, so teachers reading texts to them, whether they're nursery rhymes or fairy tales or you know folk tales or um, picture books of, of various kinds, it's, it should be a part of every single day. And I think that's something that Balanced Literacy has um, done a good job of, of saying that literature should be at the heart of what we're doing. Um, where the, it's gone wrong is that it's the emphasis is that you expect students to be able to read that literature by themselves to begin with. And that if mm-hmm. the book isn't um, you know, formatted in the right way or if it doesn't have a really captivating story or, or um, you know, don't get me wrong, some decodable books are written really well now. Like there's some really great stories out there and great um, illustrations and make those books really fantastic. But initially the goal isn't to make the best book in the world. The goal right. is to have a text that's there for an instructional purpose. And until they become proficient or at a, a certain intermediate level of decoding, some of the books are going to be um, less rich than we want them to be. But then that's where the teacher comes in and the parents at home as well, if they can, where they read great books to them and that should never stop. Um, giving them opportunities to hear literature and to hear stories and to hear 
um, information texts about interesting topics um, and fantastic illustrations and um, all of those things. I think that's that's probably the biggest thing that we can learn from the, the movement in the last 40 years is that we should always give student access to rich meanings and texts. And that's where they build their oral language as well, not just from conversation and from play, but also from hearing and engaging in shared book reading. Um, and that starts right from birth, but um, definitely in the early years of age three and four and, and then the start of school as well. I think when you talk about shared book reading, are you referring to the teacher reading aloud to the students? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. So um, especially in those early stages of, um, de of the reading development where the students can't independently read, um, teachers reading to students, um, but you know, parents reading at home as well, other family members, um, older peers reading to younger peers, I think is, is really helpful um, as well. But in my classroom, in, you know, in the, the first year of school, we also have a big focus on paired reading as well. So reading decodable books to each other and at a similar sort of level. So that we've got a similar level of proficiency in their decoding skills of the where they're up to in the phonics sequence. And they get to hear fluent text read by a peer and have an opportunity mm. to jump in and, and provide feedback and also enjoy the text together. Because as they progress through, you know, they're halfway through the decodable sort of scheme, um, the, the books start becoming much more interesting. And it's not just about getting the words right, even though the, the focus is on decoding. It's also about the fluency and the, the prosody and, um, and also the meanings that you're learning um, along the way as well. Because um, the meaning that we get from text is ultimately what we're wanting students to, to do. That's the whole point of teaching them how to decode is so that they get to reading comprehension. But for many students in the way that it's been taught in the last 40 years is um, there's been a barrier for them ever being able to access that meaning independently. And they might be able to do it in really predictable texts where the, the, book, the words can be guessed. But as soon as those pictures disappear, or as soon as the sentence structures become more complicated and less predictable, then um, you see those students fall down. And ultimately, they never get to the meanings of those rich texts because they don't have the decoding skills that unlocks that door. Back to shared reading a little bit. So I know um, when I read Christopher Such's book, The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading, he for him also shared reading is read aloud. But for a lot of us that came from balanced literacy, shared reading was the big text that you yes. read with your students. Yep. And like when I did that, I think that was how we thought we were teaching them to read because they were getting yes. access to all these high frequency words and they would see the words enough. But um, I know that uh, many people are talking about shared reading in a proper context in a science of reading based classroom where uh, the text you read make together may be more complex. So mm. it's like a, a knowledge building and it yes. helps them feel what oral language or what fluency sounds like. Mm. I, I, I'm struggling. I'm like, I think that all makes sense. I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out in my head because I think, well, fluency is automaticity. So can you really call it fluency? Is it just knowledge building? What would you say about that? So I think it depends what the purpose of that um, sort of shared reading is. Like if you've set it up so that the, the text is deliberately more complicated than the students could decode by themselves or read fluently by themselves, then the purpose should be about building vocabulary and knowledge and um, richness of story and character and things like that. And that's a really valid use of um, that opportunity to, to read together. I think in the um, you know years two and three, there's a bigger role for reading text together, um, mm -hmm. whether it's in you know things like choral reading or the modelled reading by the teacher and students tracking along, um, where there's a dual benefit for fluency and hearing fluent sure. reading and and being an opportunity to practice that fluent reading as well. And at the same time, you might be learning vocabulary and elements of narrative or informational texts and and knowledge as well. So I, I think depending on the year level, what that shared reading looks like and the benefits you would 
would get from it are a little bit different. But I think certainly moving away from that pure balanced literacy approach of like this is modeled reading versus shared reading versus guided reading and independent reading. I think yeah. that's there's a bit of a misconception in the way that's structured in that um, the way that uh, the only thing that's going to improve students' fluency is hearing fluent reading. In fact, what might improve their fluency the most in the early years is actually getting good at, sol- at, um, at recognizing and um, figuring out words, so word attack skills. And that's going to be their phonics knowledge, their phonemic awareness skills, um, you know, tapping into that orthographic sort of learning about how yeah. words are structured and how they pull together. Um, and then also that fluency practice. So when I said paired fluency reading before, it's, it's really about two peers reading together on a decodable text and giving them mm-hmm. an opportunity to practice um, fluent reading and hear fluent reading from a peer. There's some meaning making and some vocabulary building going on because you can't stop the brain from doing that. So much of that is um, natural to the brain to, to make sense of text and, and it's good to cue students into the text. But in that fluency exercise of maybe you know 10 minutes of fluency a day, um, it's an opportunity really to build um, that that prosody and that that ability to um, to read words in the context of a whole sentence or a whole text. Um, so that there's those multiple purposes there, and that's where, like, if you feel, you know, um, if you feel in a, as in a balanced literacy classroom, that the only way to give them opportunities to learn how to decode words or to read words in general is to see shared reading in context. That's where we get caught up because it's impossible to give students the kinds of exposure to the various um, words and how they're structured and the sound letter patterns if we're always looking for just the right book to show that. Sometimes you just need to have those single words up there and reading them together on cards or on paper or on the screen and, and giving them opportunities to decode as a group and also in small groups as well. Those individual single word reading opportunities strip away all of the complexity and allow them to focus on that skill that they're building, which might be to um, you know get... Uh, double consonant blends before the vowel. So those TR and SL sort of words, that might be the thing that they're struggling with because they're constantly, constantly leaving out one of those consonants um, while, they're, while they're reading. So depending on what the goal is, um, those single words that you, that you put up or that you read together will have that really strong purpose and it's an orthographic or a phonological purpose. Um, and you're basically getting that ready so that when they attack words like that in their decodable books and they're practicing for fluency, they've got those tools in their toolkit. They're not having to guess the word because they know what to do when they approach a word like this. They have to sound out each consonant, then the vowel and any other consonants afterwards and then blend it back together. And that's going to be hard for some because it's five sounds they have to blend into one syllable um, but that's the skill that we're building once they have um, you know some fluency with the, the basic CVC words that's the real work that happens and then there's long vowels and then there's multisyllabic words and, and suffixes and things like that and all of that might be a potential bump in the road for some students which is where having a structured scope and sequence allows those gaps to be filled before they're even sort of um, before the gaps sort of widen in students that get it versus students that don't get it independently. Why do you think it is that so many balanced literacy experts are afraid of encouraging us to do anything out of context? Because I know that's, that was something I didn't want to do. And you, ta- you just um, touched on that just now quite yeah. a bit. But why are, we, why are so many teachers afraid of that? I think because it's, a, it's a reaction. The whole language movement was a reaction to what was seen as um, um, acontextualized and... Um, potentially boring looking drills where teachers say, this is at, everyone say at, 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 and then this is B and say, but, 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 and sort of forcing them to do these drills that back in the sixties and and fifties might've been, you know, quite boring and and might've been Mm -hmm. quite repetitive and might not have made the connections that we know now between, um, 
being able to recognize sounds and also blend them and put them into words and um, spell those words themselves, which from the last 30 years of scientific research, we've known that it's important to actually get those words, uh, get those sounds into words and, and help students to both read them and spell them and have that reciprocal process. So I think whole language and balanced literacy was a push away from all of that and saying, you know, I've seen kids learn to read without all of that. So it mustn't be necessary. And yeah. when Mari Clay and Ken Goodman did their work observing student um, reading and student errors, they made the assumption that it wasn't just sounding out that was going on. There was other cues that the students were using. And as you said, if they were reading a predictable book, they may well have been using other cues because that was maybe the only way they could have predicted what that word might be. You know, a student can't independently read the word photosynthesis in a book about butterflies when their decoding is at a year one level. Like they don't know those sound letter patterns. They don't know how to attack a multisyllabic word sound by sound. So if they've got some background knowledge and they've heard that word before, then they could accurately predict what that word might be. But is it decoding? Not necessarily. Um, and that's where for some students that lack of... Um, practice on actual word attack skills doesn't set them up for success later on when the words get really hard and they've never heard them before in their oral language. So to go back to your point, um, I really think it was an honest attempt by whole language and balanced literacy advocates to say, well, there's more to reading than just sitting there and drilling. And it feels, you know, it doesn't feel as nice as sitting together and sitting in a circle and reading a book together and making meaning. And, and that's, that's something really important to feel like you have that time with your students. But in terms of getting some opportunities for sound letter and, and phonics and um, the teaching of phonemic awareness back in there, not necessarily wrapped up in a book, is that it gives the students the number of exposures that they're going to need sometimes to make these representations. Some students with low level um, literacy to begin to be beginning school or who are at risk for things like dyslexia, they might need 200 exposures to get a particular sound letter pattern in their head of this is a letter and that makes this sound. And so 200 exposures of that particular pattern is really hard to get if you haven't got a structured sequence that allows them to practice it over and over and over um, and allow mastery to occur um, because maybe they've only encountered that but sound in the, the letter of the week back in the first week of term um, or something like that where that there's a whole lot of books with B in it and they might have remembered it but they're still making errors between B and P or um, you know E and I you see a lot with the E and it sound um, where the students just can't get the difference between those two sounds. Wrapping it up in a book sometimes is lovely but it doesn't allow for the number of practices and number of exposures that actually builds the fluency which ironically they need in order to read those lovely books later down the track yeah. and you know there's nothing stopping them enjoying those books now with the teacher reading it for them so we've talked a lot about how foundational skills teaching is going to look different can you talk a little bit about comprehension i know in balanced literacy we thought we had that down um, <laughs> because we were all about the book yeah um but i don't think um I know I've talked a lot about how comprehension strategies have their place, mm, but they I should do. be in service of the book and not mm. driving the, cho the book choice, right? Yep. Can you talk yep. a little bit about that and any other comprehension things? I think so. I, I, in terms of the role of comprehension strategies, they were really one of the shining lights of the balanced literacy movement. Comprehension strategies weren't a thing in whole language. Um, it wasn't as explicit and clear about that. But um, in the early 2000s, there was this growing body of research about these comprehension strategies, like summarizing, finding the main idea, inferring, um, visualizing, and things like that. And because it was in the reading panel report, there was a bit of a remit for... Um, 
people to build a whole curriculum around that. And Fonda Spinell mm-hmm. did just that. And so did Lucy Culkins and, um, and other reading schemes made it all about choosing a comprehension strategy of, of the week or um, you, know, mm-hmm. you might work it on for a few weeks. I think what was the misinterpretation of how that was implemented was that comprehension strategies as a thing in terms of cueing students into the fact that you can summarize and that you can make inferences and that you can visualize while you're reading, there is some benefit for that. But most of the studies don't last any longer than six weeks. So the actual intervention benefits of doing um, conversations and cueing students into those things doesn't isn't much. Um, there isn't much benefit after doing it, you know, once or twice a week for six weeks. And that you know they haven't actually established it being like, let alone six years of comprehension strategies day in day out. And I think the other thing that you mentioned there is that um, there was a misinterpretation of the role of comprehension strategies in building meaning, um, in that. Y- just by working on a generic strategy like summarizing and not being conscious of what the topic is and what the texts are about. Say you've got a mini lesson as F&P like to do and you've got everyone together and they're talking about summarizing and how it works and you model it and you show how it works in a, in a, in a particular mentor text and then students go off and they practice summarizing in their own level text. The topic potentially has no um, consistency between students or between the teacher and, and what the, uh, the students are reading. Um, everyone could be reading about completely different things. The thing that um, in the balanced literacy classroom that holds it together is that strategy of, of summarizing. And it's um, based on that belief that this is what good readers do. They know how to summarize. So if we just get them summarizing, then um, they'll be able to do that with any book. Unfortunately, comprehension is so tied to knowledge and to vocabulary that you can't actually build comprehension strategies um, without um, without a background knowledge about the text. So if I, you know you might be the best summarizer in the world, but if I give you a a, um, a journal article on rheumatoid arthritis and you're not a rheumatologist, you're going to really struggle to summarize that text in any sort of fruitful or meaningful way. Um, and it's the same for other students if they. If they've seen some summarizing and then if they they go off and practice summarizing with another text on a different topic, there's not going to be that continuity that you want in students when they're making meaning from text to actually build up their schemas and build up their their knowledge of of how different information fits together. So the way that you would flip it and and make it um, work in a, a classroom that's informed by the science of reading is that the comprehension strategies would sit there in the background and be things that you draw upon as you model how to read text and share text together. And when you go off and, and you see how students are reading text independently or in small groups Um, but really the focus is what is this text about and what's the knowledge that we need in order to understand the text and really trying to model how you build up an understanding of the whole text and how it fits together Um, so cueing students into key vocabulary they might not be familiar with or linking this text with previous texts that they've looked at before whether it's narrative or or information or otherwise Um, that's the really the thing that's been missing in the balanced literacy classroom in that we can build knowledge at the same time that we build comprehension skills because those two things can't really be separated they're still going to summarize they're still going to find the main idea but like i said you only need a little bit of exposure into those strategies to then start using them what they really need is practice making meaning from text and not just text that they're already familiar with text on topics that they're actually learning about for the first time so that's that reading to learn um, piece which i think is really missing in the balanced literacy classroom for me it's about bringing the text alive and the comprehension strategies are always going to be there, but they don't have to be the focus so much. They can sit in the background and put the text and the knowledge that sits behind the text at the foreground. I think that's one of the main messages of that um, that piece that I put together. Yeah, well, we could just talk forever. I could talk forever, but um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been wonderful. And I know you mentioned questioning the author. And I think 
Um, Isabel Beck just put out a book, a revised book of that. Maybe not just. Yes, yeah, fifteen, yeah, fifteen years smarter. Yeah, the second edition yeah. is really, really good. I'd definitely recommend that. Anything else? Any other books or references that you can re- recommend to people that um, that are trying to get into this, especially the comprehension piece? I know um, Nancy Hennessy has written a book, and Oakhill and Kane. I think those are both tough. Um, yeah, they're quite. Dense I do recommend initially, them, but, but they, they are, are very good. Um, look, I think. something that really made this issue of comprehension and knowledge click for me is Natalie Wexler's The Knowledge Gap. Um, And you might've talked about that on your show already. I think even if you just read the first chapter, because it's the first chapter is um, basically an introduction to the entire premise of the book. And then the different chapters go into the history and how it's gotten to this situation. Because once you're hooked, you you sort of keep going. But even as a basis of of trying to question why we have this focus on comprehension strategies, I think Mm -hmm. she really does it really well. And as as a therapist, and as a teacher, I was um, prey to um, thinking that comprehension strategies were the, the focus as well. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. only in the last five years that I've started to understand the true picture of how complex comprehension is and how it's just it's not about just drilling strategies. It's, it's really about cueing students into the meanings behind text and helping them to uncover and unlock the meanings that are locked inside. Um, obviously, they need proficient decoding skills to do that. But once you know, you've got some fluency, like the, the focus really needs to shift on what is this text about? And, you know, what's this exciting topic? And um, it's that knowledge piece that's really been missing for so long. Um, I'd also recommend there's in terms of instructional routines, I think, you know, Christopher Such's book you've talked about, it's a nice introduction. It's a really um, accessible way to think, well, how could I make this work in my classroom? How could I structure my literacy block differently? Because it's not going to look like Reader's Workshop and Writer's Workshop. It's going to have a pretty different feel. Um, but I'd also recommend there's some great webinars out there that show examples of, yeah. um, you know, practice. So the Reading League is a great resource. Um, in Australia, we've got a charity called Think Forward Educators, which um, okay. I, I started a few years ago. And oh. we've got experts coming on and talking about how they do this in their classroom and um, really practical examples that teachers can use. So freely available content on there that people can engage with. Um, So I think the other thing is lean on your colleagues um, that are doing this and and just ask to go and visit. I think there's nothing like going and seeing how people are doing it in their own classroom, especially if they're a a year or two down the road or or more. Um, Because I know that when people come and see my own school um, last year or um, you know, other schools around my part of Melbourne, like seeing is believing and you're like, oh, I never knew I could get kids doing that. And, you know, you fit so much into your 60 minutes uh, of the, the literacy skills part of the block. I can't believe now you've got all this time that you can go into comprehension, you can do rich text and yeah. you can do a whole writing lesson essentially. So seeing is believing in that way and, um, you know, trying to source those pieces of information to make it work for you in your classroom. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, you're going to make editing really easy because you just <laughs> had all these great things to say. I won't have to cut anything That's out. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to, is there anything else you want to add before we sign off? Um, so um, I, I would say that another resource that people should look into in terms of the knowledge-rich curriculum is the Core Knowledge um, Foundation. They've got incredible resources um, that build knowledge and, and have really rich text for you to use in your read alouds um, and also in your geography and history lessons. Um, there's a fantastic set of resources there. We've got a project in Australia where we've been combining aspects of 
the core knowledge curriculum with um, explicit teaching um, mm-hmm. and and building sort of uh, lessons um, into things like PowerPoint to make it really easy for teachers to pick it up because it is quite yeah. dense to get your head around. So that project's called Read to Learn. Um, okay. And we're really passionate about um, making that available to as many people as possible. We're lucky that core knowledge makes their work um, free to um, adapt and use for non-commercial purposes. So that's okay. why, um, you know, I think it's an attempt to to bring those resources alive in, in a way that we've tried to do at our school. And we've done all this work behind the scenes. We might as well share it with as many teachers as possible. Um, and I've, the feedback we've got from that is that some schools that haven't done anything on science of reading have started with some of these knowledge-rich units and taught comprehension in this way. And they've suddenly got an energized group of teachers who are saying, why was I not teaching in this way? Like my kids are suddenly loving reading and they're loving, mm-hmm. you know, learning about these fascinating topics. And it's an entry point to seeing reading, not just as an opportunity to practice skills, but as a way to open up the world to students. I think that's what's really powerful about the knowledge-rich curriculum and, um, you know, uh, looking at literature in a really rich way as well. Wonderful. I will provide links to all these things in the show notes. And thank you so much for taking time every day to talk to me. It's my absolute pleasure, Anna. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I really encourage you to head to the show notes today. There's a lot of great links there, including a link to a free primary word reading, spelling, and learning curriculum, plus all the other things that Dr. Swain mentioned. So you can find the show notes at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 114. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.